Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to another weekend bonus episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. So that wired long read that I suggested yesterday about Amazon's warehouse robots really stuck with me for personal reasons, as you'll hear in a second. I decided to talk to the author of the piece, Matt Simon, not only because I wanted more flavor on what it was like to work with these things, but also because he raises some interesting ideas about human-slash-robot symbiosis. In short, the robot apocalypse might still be coming, but not today, and for the foreseeable future... That might be the growth industry for humans. Robot babysitters. Please enjoy. The reason that I wanted to talk about this story specifically, because, um, you know, people have gone inside Amazon warehouses and fulfillment centers before, but it's a little personal because the only real, quote unquote, real job I've ever had was for six months, I worked at FedEx, basically at a a place like you're describing where, you know, boxes are coming down a belt and we've got to sling them into the various containers so they can go to the airports. It's the whole reason why I know really obscure uh, airport uh, codes like MCO is for Orlando and things like that. Um, (laughs) Good skill to have. Yeah, well, mostly useless skill unless you're, you know, a travel (laughs) agent or something. But so I was fascinated by this one. But let's clarify at first. in your article, you're, you didn't visit a fulfillment center. This was what? What do they call it? A sorting facility? It's a sorting facility. So it's kind of the next step up from a fulfillment center. So in a, a fulfillment center, you have humans that are packing the boxes, uh, you know, putting items into a box, sending it to you. Um, that box doesn't go straight to you from there, though. It actually goes to this place called a sorting center where you have Lots and lots of boxes, a lot of these flat packages uh, coming in that are then sorted into pallets that are then loaded into the trucks that go out to your neighborhood. Okay, so explain that to me. Because like, the one where you visited, this, this was in Colorado, like outside of Denver, right? Right, right. So how far away would – okay, so the fulfillment center is where they actually put the things in the boxes, and then they put them on trucks and then send them over to this other place? How far away is the fulfillment center? That that I'm not so sure of. Um, so I, I I'm not. It's you know it's positioned right next to the airport. So presumably mm-hmm. they're coming in from maybe afar. But um, it's not like but, it's it was next door or something like that. No, no. So yeah. So there's this is the the sorting center pretty much on its own here in the Denver area. All right. So before we describe the new system that you got to play with. Um, Lay out for me, as best you understand it, the way Amazon has been doing package sorting all this time. Because I think you said in the story, like, there there were still some humans over in the corner doing the sorting the traditional way, right? There were. So they still have, a, you know, a significant section of the floor in this warehouse dedicated to humans doing it the old way. And it is extremely 
labor intensive. So what you have, the first step is this chute um, where these packages are flowing like a waterfall. And at the bottom of that chute, you have humans that are then picking them up, looking at the label for specific code, and then throwing it into the corresponding chute, which then goes down various conveyor belts to people actually on the floor below. And those people are physically picking up those packages, scanning them, and then stacking them on pallets. And those pallets have been loaded into trucks that go out to neighborhoods. So this is, of course, a really interesting problem in robotics is the manipulation that we're doing here. So it's extremely intensive um, picking up those packages, playing them around um, that robots just aren't capable of doing, uh, which is why humans are still very much in the loop in their new robotic system. But uh, it, it's just that the work is very difficult. It's, it's lifting heavy packages and having to manipulate them and, and get the correct codes or else it's going to the wrong neighborhood. Well, and that's exactly what I'm familiar with. And we had to, we had to <laughs> scan them, except 20 years ago, we scanned them with these little handheld devices, and then you had to put them into a bank and have it all be uploaded and things like that. But um, okay, so this this distribution center that we're with the new robotic process that we're about to describe give me a broad sense uh like how big is it how high are the ceilings is it one big open cavernous space like i'm imagining it is it is a extremely cavernous space um the ceilings are very high i don't have the feet uh for you but extremely high the field itself that the robots are are scooting around on are is 125,000 square feet and that just makes up about seemingly about half of the facility because on the other half there are those humans doing it the old way it is a very very large facility in in this sort of uh you know industrial park outside of the airport um but what's interesting about it is that it's you know one of the few warehouses in the world where you have humans not only working alongside robots you know working cooperatively cooperatively with them but you have this interesting uh contrast here these two sides juxtaposed so the humans doing it one way the old way without any robots and then on the other way this kind of slow transfusion of robots into that process to make it more efficient okay so describe the new system is it still does it still begin with the the waterfall of boxes coming down a chute it does. It's a, but it's a, a more segmented waterfall, I guess you could say. So you have along the edge of the field, as they call it, where the robots are all scooting around, uh, you have humans who are lined up in stations. And they have a chute that has packages flowing through it, and they have essentially a pile of packages. They pick them up one at a time, scan them uh, with a little red dot that comes down in front of them, um, and put them on top of the robot that is also in front of them. And when they scan it, that actually actually uploads the destination into the robot's brain. So all the human does is press a button and the robot shoots off into the field um, and finds its destination, which is one of over 300 shoots um, in the floor that all fall down into boxes below. Um, so once that happens, the packages accumulate below in these various, uh, coordinated to zip codes, essentially. Um, and it's the same principle as what was happening in the old way. So you have, instead of the 
humans scanning those at the end of the line, um, they are falling automatically into boxes. And those boxes just go straight onto trucks uh, bound for your neighborhood. So um, it's important to note that while this is a really interesting robotics uh, solution to this uh, issue of efficiency, humans are very much in the loop every step of the way. And it brings us to this really interesting time in history here where we have humans for the first time really working alongside very sophisticated machines. And that brings up all kinds of really interesting ethical arguments and just the way that humans are adapting to machines as much as the machines have to adapt to us. Well, we'll come back to that in a second. But so essentially, these these robots, the labor that they're eliminating is the physical walking or carting of the various boxes to the, I don't know, however many humans would be assigned to like 30 different shoots or something. Like the robots themselves are on this sort of like chessboard grid and they're programmed to deliver these boxes to the shoots. It takes out the, the actual walking the box over their part. Right. Yeah, so um, it, it's just the way that it ends up is more organized, as opposed to, as I had mentioned, at the end of the line with the human old way, you have people physically taking those packages and stacking them on top of each other in these pallets that are then loaded into trucks. Uh, down below the field of the robots where the chutes empty into, uh, you have boxes that the packages automatically go into sometimes. Other times they have humans at the bottom of those chutes then loading the boxes, uh, the packages into those larger boxes. Um, but it, it's it's certainly alleviating much of the hard labor here. Um, but at the same time, creating these new opportunities for human-robot interaction. So these the, these little robots, I keep calling these types of robots like the ankle droids because they remind me of the, those, <laughs> those floor droids in the Death Star, you know? Um, they they maneuver around their environment and they have i think you you described they've got cameras on them and things like that but they're not they're not autonomous right there's like some sort of air traffic controller controlling them yeah it's a it's a really interesting system because robots as we know them today as they're becoming more sophisticated and escaping the lab and and you know, rolling around and walking around out in the real world. They're autonomous, you know, largely on their own. They have vision systems and they can avoid obstacles and things like that. But these are, you know, give up actually some of their sovereignty to a cloud system that is coordinating up to 800 of these little robots scooting around on this 125,000 square foot field. Um, so that comes with an incredible number of issues. It's, it's about coordinating efficiency. So getting a robot that has to go to its particular destination one shoot halfway across the field, but then has to figure out how to do that with all these other robots creating traffic problems. And you're actually watching it on the field. You'll see robots come up to an intersection, stop, wait for another robot to go by and, and continue on. Um, so it gets much more complicated when you imagine that accidents happen and sometimes the package might fall off one of these robots. Uh, and that's when they're a little bit more of their autonomy kicks in. They can use a camera on front of their uh, the, the robots to actually see obstacles. But then the system will kick in and actually start routing the other robots around that obstacle to keep the traffic flowing. There's just there's literally, you know, lots of moving parts in this uh, this kind of system. And it's just an extremely complicated problem in swarm robotics that Amazon has taken a really interesting approach to. If I if I were to walk out onto the field, as it were, um, would I would, would they dodge me or would I have to dodge them? Do they have that? Level? Would, Sorry. Yeah. 
yeah, they would they would see. I mean, ideally, yeah, they would see yeah, you, yeah. Um, uh, and uh, be able to stop and, oh, okay. and route around you. And actually, uh, they'll call breaks um, every once in a while because at the end of the day, these are humans working alongside robots, and and humans have to take breaks. Uh, when that happens, it's it's a break for the humans there, but also an opportunity for people to actually go out on the field and pick up wayward packages if they've happened to have fallen off. Um, so again, this really interesting interplay between machines and humans, we, we need them as much as they need us. I also found it fascinating that, um, like you described, you would think, oh, well, if we can just get these things, it's all about the efficiency and the, the moving stuff quickly. So if we just make the robots uh, go as fast as possible, uh, everything can, can be faster. But it's actually, that's kind of counterproductive. It is. And, you know, one of the roboticists that was walking me through this compared it to having a Ferrari in San Francisco. Um, it's going to be able to go fast for what half a block maybe if you're lucky but you're inevitably going to get stuck in traffic there's there's very little point to having uh, a car like that um, in the city i would argue very little point to having a car like that uh, generally speaking but that's neither here nor there uh, so what they actually had to experiment with in simulation is the correct speed that these robots need to travel at um, in order to not get tangled up in each other there but also it turned out more important was the acceleration and deceleration so uh, obviously you need to break at these intersections for other robots to go by and be able to accelerate um, to improve the time that you can get your package to your destination, um, but not accelerate so much that you end up throwing the package right. off of your back. Um, and again, all of this is coordinated among hundreds and hundreds of robots. It's not just having to figure out how one machine gets through the field, but how that one machine gets through the field of many, many other robots. Right. And then also counterproductive, like uh, I think you said that they could deploy like 800 simultaneously. Yeah. But then that, then you have, you know, you can't just build more roads, you build more roads, you get more traffic. So like, I think they like limit it to like 400 or 500 at a time or something like that. Yeah, that's typical. So yeah, you know, you throw out 800 robots, it's going to get traffic jammy. Um, same thing that happens in cities if you put too many cars in there. So, and then, you know, adding yet another layer of complication, you have to have all these robots charged at uh, any given time. If one runs out of battery in the middle of the field, it then becomes an obstacle and decreases the efficiency of the system as a whole. So what they actually do is they let their robots get down to maybe 25% battery um, at the lowest, but they'll have them peel off um, every once in a while to go to the side and, and dock and charge for about three minutes, and then pop back out on the field. Um, so it's this exchange of uh, robots that are sidelined um, and robots that are active, and it's just constantly back and forth. It just a, it's, You can begin to imagine how monumentally complex the system is. Recently, the world learned the power of artificial intelligence, a technology cybersecurity leaders have been leveraging for years. Now, as AI expands and evolves, those same security leaders are left wondering where humans fit into the next generation of AI-empowered security tools and solutions. Arctic Wolf, the industry leader in managed security operations, seeks to answer this question in their newly published report, The Human-AI Partnership. 
access the insights of over 800 cybersecurity decision makers in North America and the United Kingdom to better understand how organizations are weighing the benefits and risks of deploying AI tools. Uncover the biggest obstacles to turning AI and human engineers into a formidable team. Discover why the near-term benefits of large language models are being upended by a crucial flaw in the technology. And learn what the rise of AI tools mean for human practitioners moving forward. Get your copy today at arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. That's arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Yeah, and so, you know, what we're familiar with is like the idea of like um like even in airports the the um the baggage sorting thing is like you're imagining like you know this maze of conveyor belts and then it, it, a scanner runs by and, and uh, something hits it down one chute and down the other whatever but like this is this is able to achieve that on like an order of magnitude you know uh more complexity than just there's 20 gates or something like that yeah, it's you know over 300 of these shoots on the field and extra complicating matters is that some particularly populous zip codes will have more than one shoot. Um, and then that and so the system then has to figure out, okay, well, uh, in order to have packages evenly distributed on the field, um, which makes traffic more efficient, the robot needs to go to this shoot as opposed to this shoot. Um, but also, if one of those shoots starts filling up more, um, that becomes a problem. And then the other robots will get routed to that other shoot for that zip code. <laughs> they, like there, there are almost infinite <laughs> number of complicating factors to this system. All right, so let's let's talk about the the human angle here. Um, the humans are still involved. What largely because of manual dexterity of we don't have an arm, a robot arm yet that can that can pick a box up off of one shoot and put it on the robot itself, basically. That that's exactly it. It's it's a problem of manipulation, which is arguably the biggest problem uh, outstanding in robotics. Mm. Robots just are not good at manipulating objects. Uh, just, just think about the number of products that Amazon sells, and you know, getting a, a robot to be able to manipulate all of those well is is absolutely impossible at this point. So what Amazon has done is, um, you know, I think admitted to the fact that, well, we're not going to be able to get a robot that can pick uh, products and put them in a box like they do in a fulfillment center. But here in a sorting center where you are working with boxes, which are flat, um, and a robot, which they're experimenting with, a, a robotic arm, has a, a vacuum manipulator where they're trying to get to be able to pick up packages and then put them on these little robots that are zipping around the field. Um, but for the time being, these humans that are working in this sorting center are very much leveraging the unique human ability to be able to manipulate a range of objects. Um, not only that, but to make judgments, which robots just can't 
do. So I, I think a really interesting example would be something like a, a a thing of laundry detergent, a clear laundry detergent, and it it broke inside of a box and it started leaking. And you know, a human might be able to first of all smell that before they even see it. Uh, and if they pick up the box, they could feel that it's sticky before even seeing it because it's a clear fluid. Um, that is a wildly complex problem for getting a robot to, to handle it. It's just impossible, again, at this point. So a human can use that very unique human judgment to say, okay, that's wrong. I need to pick that up, sideline it, because if I put it on a robot, it's going to spill laundry detergent all over the floor. Um, I think I refer to it like a, a snail sliming <laughs> the rest of the, the robotic floor, which is, of course, terrible for the system um, to get clogged up with laundry detergent. Um, but, you know, that dovetails with the admission that we are just nowhere near having having a robot that will be able to manipulate objects the way that a human does with the same speed um, and dexterity. So, yeah, what are the, to your mind, what are the implications here about, you know, the, the whole idea that we're always hearing is that the slowly but surely the robots are replacing the human stuff. But it, your piece almost describes, like, it's almost moving the humans up into like this sort of management, not management in the, you know, middle management sense, but in the like managing the overall operations of the machines, right? Exactly. I think one of the more interesting um, takeaways from this sort of system, this is coming up uh, in other areas, is the idea of a robot babysitter. Um, not a, a robot that babysits kids, but a human that babysits robots. So you see this actually in delivery robots you've probably heard about that are scooting around sidewalks. Um, you actually have humans in a a call center somewhere, if a robot gets stuck, it can call up to that call center and be remote controlled. Um, essentially, the robot admitting it doesn't know what to do because robots are kind of stupid still. Um, so you have that kind of babysitting out in the, uh, the our cities, but also in the sorting center, you have humans that have been actually promoted, Amazon says, from lower level jobs to become essentially robot caretakers, where they're monitoring the health of the system um, to make sure that these robots, which again, just aren't very smart yet, um, are doing their job appropriately. So you have, um, the, Amazon also refers to this as upskilling. So uh, what what we have been arguing here at Wired for quite some time is that the robot apocalypse taking all of our jobs is not here, and it, it, I don't think it will be for quite some time. Um, this is automation, same as it ever was. Uh, you have robots and machines that are able to do jobs better than humans, and, and we're, of course, in a system of capitalism that will uh, give precedence to that sort of thing. So, what we have developing, though, is a robotic system in Amazon's sorting center and elsewhere where robots are taking over parts of jobs, not jobs entirely. So you can think of, you know, in a more office-y setting a long time ago, we got word processors, and that made our jobs not obsolete but more efficient. Um, that was automation in a sense. And this is more of a, a physical system, but we are seeing and some Good studies are, are beginning to back this up that that robot apocalypse isn't here. What's more happening is that we are kind of intertwining more with machines in our jobs. Uh, and this is very evident here at Amazon, where you have people working very closely with robots. And it's an admission um, that, first of all, our robots are nowhere near sophisticated enough to do these jobs. Um, but also that if we're going to want to be successful as employees in this new ecosystem, we will have to adapt to the machines um, and admit that there are things that they can do 
better than us. Um, this is, of course, a sticky slope because robots will get ever more efficient and faster and better at manipulating things like that, where they will be able to take over more jobs. But in the near term, we are seeing this really interesting dynamic, uh, this interplay between uh, people and machines. It's a man-machine symbiosis, especially as you're describing, where when the humans have to have a break time, the the robots get the break time. So <laughs> the robots are dependent on us for for rest. But um, so a last question for you. Um, I don't know how long you got to um, play with this little process, but um, was it a fun job <laughs> putting putting the 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 feeding the robots as it were? Uh, I. I only did it for probably about 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't know if I could make a judgment because it was very novel to me right, right. <laughs> for those those 10 minutes. But it is – it's really interesting. It's um, – and that's another segment of this is you know, so much of this can be automated um, as we, again, have done in centuries past. Um, do you automate out the boring parts of the human job and, again, leave humans do that good judgment and fine manipulation that we humans can do. So, you know, standing there doing this job, um, I felt proud to be a human (laughs) in a certain way, Um, but also a little tense that, you know, machines are getting better. um, And if we aren't able to adapt as employees in this new world, um, I think we're going to start to get left behind. Um, But it it brings up these just really interesting interactions between humans and machines that, you know, researchers are just starting to talk about, you know, developing bonds with machines and naming them, (laughs) that sort of thing, as co-workers. It'll be really interesting to see how this develops, first of all, in this Amazon warehouse in particular, but in the job market at large, how we, again, intertwine more with machines in the coming years. 